Do you pray big prayers? Do you ask for big things? On your prayer list, what are the big things? If you're feeling audacious and confident in God, what do you ask for? Do you pray for health of someone you love? Healing from a terrible, wasting, painful disease? Do you pray for national or international things? Peace in Ukraine, Sri Lanka and Ethiopia. Today as we open Habakkuk 3, we're going to read a big prayer. We're going to be challenged to pray big prayers like Habakkuk. His prayer is a model for us. Uh, His prayer teaches us, and you might want to write this down, it teaches that big prayer comes from knowing God and knowing what God's done and joyfully entrusting the present and the future to God. So knowing God and what he's done, uh, rejoicing in God for the present and the future. Knowing and rejoicing. Habakkuk is a man of prayer. Uh, Even before the start of this book, Habakkuk's been praying. He's been crying out to God, crying out to end the violence within God's people. Violence within Judah and Jerusalem. And because he's a prophet, God has spoken his answer, the answer to that prayer through Habakkuk. Uh, His answer is, I'm going to send the Babylonians to punish my people. And then that drives, that answer drives Habakkuk back to his knees. The Babylonians, really, the cures worse than the disease. That's Habakkuk chapter 1. In chapter 2, God answers again. God's answer is that even though he's using the Babylonians to bring his justice, they are also sinners. And so because they're also sinners, just like the people of God are sinners, they're also going to face woe after woe, God's judgment in history and into eternity. But even in what is a pretty uh, dark book, but pretty dark message, there are glimmers of hope. In chapter 2 we're told the earth will be filled with God's glory. And we're told despite the sins of the proud, the righteous will live by faith. And so it's in the context of this dialogue with God, these dark days in Judah, because there's violence there and darker days are coming, the Babylonians, in this context we find Habakkuk once again in prayer. Uh, This time he's praying not because he's seen things happening in the world, this time he prays because of what he's heard in God's word, what he's read in God's word. Reading the Bible drives Habakkuk to prayer. He, he reads about the amazing things God's done in the past, the good news of God rescuing his people from slavery in Egypt. He's read this good news and he begs God to do it again, to put good news on repeat. Uh, let's read from verse 1, Habakkuk chapter 3 and verse 1. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet on Shigionoth, which is either uh, you know a melody or an instrument, something like that. We don't, no one really knows. That's why it's not been translated into English. It's the Hebrew word, Shigionoth. Lord, I have heard of your fame. 
I stand in awe of your deeds. Lord, repeat them in our day. In our time, make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. What's his prayer? God, I know what you've done. Please do it again. Let's have good news on repeat. What's the fame he's heard of? Well, that's what chapter verses 3 to 15 tell us. It's the amazing things God has done in rescuing his people. We're going to hear in a moment it's how God rescued his people from slavery in Egypt, led them through the wilderness and brought them into the promised land. These verses tell us about the things recorded in Exodus, Numbers, Joshua and Judges. We're going to have a look at those details fairly briefly in a moment, but the question for us to think about, do you ever pray, God, do it again? Do you ever think about the amazing things God's done and ask him to put it on repeat? What comes into your heart when you you hear of God's fame and deeds, the amazing things he's done? It could be things like the Billy Graham Crusades in the 50s and 60s, stadiums filled. I think it's still the record for the MCG and the Randwick Racecourse, stadiums filled by people hearing and responding to the call of the gospel. Maybe you're a bit better at history and your heart goes back a little bit further. The evangelical revivals in England and America of the 1700s. The days of Wesley and Whitfield. Maybe it's the Reformation of the 1500s. Luther and Calvin rediscovering the truth of righteousness being through faith alone. Maybe you really go back and it's the explosive growth of Christianity in those first few centuries. Even the time of the apostles we were reading in Acts last term. I reckon, depending on who you are, we hear these things and we get wistful. We get nostalgic even. But I don't think we pray. I don't think we pray, God, do it again. I'm not sure why we don't. Maybe deep down we don't believe he will. I feel rebuked by Habakkuk's prayer. We don't believe that God will save our neighbours and friends, let alone the thousands we hear about in the Bible and in history. We don't pray good news on repeat. Now Habakkuk has just as little reason to pray as we do. The people of God, God's holy people, were full of violence and corruption. The future looked bleak. The Babylonians were on the horizon. But he doesn't give up. He he hears of God's fame, the things he's done in the past, and he falls on his knees. What on earth could make him do that? What drives Habakkuk to prayer? What is it that he knows of God that we seem to have forgotten? Habakkuk knows God is a powerful saviour. As he says in verse 2, God shows wrath and mercy, and mercy. And the events that teach Habakkuk this, the moment in history that has grabbed Habakkuk's heart, is God's rescue of the Israelites from Egypt, taking them from slavery through the wilderness, showing up on Mount Sinai where he gave the law, and then finally bringing them into the promised land. That's the event. 
And it's described in verses 3 to 15 in poetic ways. And because it is poetry, uh, that's whatever the shigionoth is, that must be the poetic form. Because of this, it's a little hard to get our head around. But we will quickly go through it. Uh, It starts with God coming down on Mount Sinai, showing his splendour and power. Verse 3. God came from Teman, uh, the Holy One from Mount Paran. His glory covered the heavens and his praise filled the earth. His splendour was like the sunrise. Rays flashed from his hand where his power was hidden. Uh, This is a picture of Mount Sinai. It's a bit strange because it uses different name for the location, but Mount Paran is just another name for Mount Sinai. I don't know why, but in the Bible it gets at least three names, but we'll just call it Sinai because that's what most of us think of it as being called. I like to imagine Habakkuk, and he's grabbed the scroll of Exodus, and he's reading Exodus, and his heart and mind is filled with God's glory and splendour. He's there with the people, trembling at the thunder and lightning. Habakkuk begins by remembering Sinai. And then he jumps forward into the conquest as the people are led towards and then enter the promised land. Verse 5, a plague went before him. Pestilence followed his steps. He stood and shook the earth. He looked and made the nations tremble. The ancient mountains crumbled and the age-old hills collapsed. But he marches on forever. I saw the tents of Kushan in distress, the dwellings of Midian in anguish. Plague and pestilence could refer to the ten plagues of Egypt or the plagues that came upon Israel in the wilderness because of their sin. Terrifying acts of God. No no wonder the nations tremble in verse 6. Nations like Midian. They're the mob who are oppressing Israel during the time of Gideon. Their hordes defeated by 300 men with their lights and trumpets. As Habakkuk reads what God did at that time, he's got the scroll of the judges or the the scroll of numbers, whatever it is, he reads it, he can see the terrifying armies of Midian thrown into confusion and defeated by God. And it's not only nations, but creation itself knows the glorious power of God. Verse 8, were you angry with the rivers, Lord? Was your wrath against the streams? Did you rage against the sea when you rode your horses and your chariots to victory? You uncovered your bow, you called for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers, the mountains saw you and writhed. Torrents of water swept by, the deep roared and lifted its waves on high. Sun and moon stood still in the heavens at the glint of your flying arrows and the lightning of your flashing spear. The Red Sea is parted, the Jordan River stopped, all to show God's power and protection of his people. The reference to the sun and moon standing still, surely he's thinking of Joshua chapter 10 and God keeping the sun in the sky until his people won the battle. This is all huge and terrifying, but it's not God showing off. It's not God flexing his muscles. Habakkuk is remembering God doing massive things, yes, to bring justice and salvation. Verse 12, 
In wrath you strode through the earth and in anger you threshed the nations. Why did God do these things? Because he was rightly angry at sin. But at the same time, verse 13, you came out to deliver your people, to save your anointed one. You crushed the leader of the land of wickedness. You stripped him from head to foot. With his own spear, you pierced his head when his warriors stormed out to scatter us, gloating as though about to devour the wretched who were in hiding. You trampled the sea with your horses, churning the great waters. As we read all these things God has done, Habakkuk is praising God. He's excited. Remember how the prayer started. Put good news on repeat and this is the good news. But some of us are a bit troubled. We don't like hearing things like God piercing someone's head or God being surrounded by plague and pestilence. How does this fit with the truth of the loving Father who we know in Jesus and by the Spirit. We read this prayer and, and it's a bit troubling, or at least it should be. We don't have time for a long answer, but the short answer is in the Bible, salvation and judgment always go together. Judgment and salvation go together. There's no bloodless salvation in the Bible, and we see this most of all in the cross. Yes, the cross is our salvation. People wear little things as jewellery, but it is a bloody torture instrument. Christ takes onto himself the wrath of God against sin. This is the answer to what we rightly find troubling about Habakkuk 3. Ultimately, God does not drive, only drive the spear through the head of his enemies, which is good if you faced oppression or abuse. There is a goodness in knowing that your abuser will face the judgment of God. But what's even bigger than this, that is not the only truth, what is bigger than this is that on the cross, Christ himself, God in flesh, was pierced with a spear for us and for our salvation. There is no bloodless salvation. And that is good news for us in Christ. Now this is just a very short answer to a very big question, a serious question. But on the cross, judgment and salvation meet. God takes his own wrath into himself so those who receive Christ can be saved. I don't know how much Habakkuk was aware of this truth, though he did say, in wrath, remember mercy. I don't know how much he gets what's going to be finally and fully revealed in Christ, but he's definitely blown away by what God has done in the past. Verse 16, I heard and my heart pounded, my lips quivered at the sound, decay crept into my bones and my my legs trembled. Yet I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. Habakkuk doesn't have a quiet time as he reads the Bible. 
As he reads the Bible, reads about what God has done through Moses, Joshua and the judges, Habakkuk is physically and almost violently moved. It puts to shame how we read or don't read the Bible. We say the Bible is God's living and active word, it's the sword of the Spirit, but do we actually expect God to grip us like he does Habakkuk? One of the signs we probably don't really believe the Bible is living and active is we don't read it. If we actually believe the living God spoke to us through the scriptures, we'd read it. If we actually believe the living God spoke through the scriptures, we'd read it without distractions. And I'm talking to myself here. How often do I read the Bible sitting in front of my computer or with the phone, with the screen on the up direction, just begging for a notification to go bing? But God is speaking. Who has the right to interrupt and distract that? Maybe we are people who read the Bible. Bible reading programs are really good, aren't they? They're a good way to get us into the habit of reading the Bible, but they do come with that weakness, don't they? Uh, One weakness, I'm sure there are others, because we're sinful and we can even turn good things into a weak thing, but one of the weaknesses is our tick-the-box the approach. Phew! I've made it through the reading for today. I'm good with God. But Habakkuk gives us a very different picture. He's not sitting there waiting for a notification. He hasn't got through the scroll, well, partway through the scroll of Exodus and then gone, excellent, done Exodus in my Bible reading. No. He reads those events and he's not distracted by anything. He reads the Bible and he meets God. This is God at work. He's, his heart pounds. His lips quiver because he knows that what God has done, he will and may, may and will do again. I reckon this is something we need to help each other with, isn't it? God's given us each other. So often we don't take advantage of them. The technical term people use is the means of grace, the one another's in our church family. We need each other's help in reading the Bible. If you struggle with reading the Bible without distractions, or if it's just a tick the box if you actually manage to do it, ask for help. Over morning tea... Ask someone about something they've done to help them get into God's word. Maybe it'll just be a bit of accountability. Say, right, let's do better this week than we did last week. Also join a Bible study group. That's why we run them. We've got booklets with questions, but the booklets and questions are not the point. They're just a tool. The point is to get us opening up God's word together and to encourage and help each other to meet God and by the Spirit to apply God's words to our lives. So there's a challenge today over morning tea. Talk about how to grow in reading the Bible and get yourself into a Bible study group. Because what enables Habakkuk to pray big prayers? It's being devoted to God's word. As Habakkuk reads how God dramatically dealt with sin and spectacularly brought salvation... He prays, he cries out, do it again, repeat them in our day. This is the foundation of our prayer. We see what God has done, we know who God is, 
But then we look at our present and we look at our reality and there's a tension. We don't see God acting like he has in the past. For Habakkuk, God doesn't seem to be acting in mercy. For us, we don't see people being saved, not in their thousands, not in their hundreds, not in their tens. And so we should pray, we must pray, God, do it again in our time. And if we know God, then no matter how bad things are in the present, we can rejoice. And that's how Habakkuk ends. Think about all the darkness that we've heard in Habakkuk. He ends with rejoicing. Verse 17. Though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Saviour. The Sovereign Lord is my strength. He, He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to tread on the heights for the director of music on my stringed instruments. God, sorry, Habakkuk wants all of us to pray his prayer, doesn't he? He wants it set to music. Get the band together, sing this song. But what's Habakkuk's life like now? Emptiness, despair. Maybe it's because of the Babylonian invasion, ravaged by war. The soldiers have taken every last fig on the tree. We see those sorts of images on our screens, don't we? Maybe because of a long drought. Maybe the crops have been ruined by flooding rains. But even though the situation is desperate, Habakkuk rejoices. Why? It's not because he's Annie. The sun will come up tomorrow. I think so many of us think We get rejoicing through naive optimism. The Bible doesn't tell us to just go, oh, she'll be right, mate. The sun will come up tomorrow. It may not in your lifetime come up tomorrow. Remember, this is the same Habakkuk. This this Habakkuk who ends with rejoicing. How did he start? He started with his message, How long, O Lord? He knows, Habakkuk knows what it's like to shout at heaven and feel like no one's listening. Habakkuk is not saying, just chin up, mate. Soldier on, she'll be right. The sun will come up tomorrow. He's not just giving us uh, empty platitudes. He knows what it's like to shout at heaven, feel like no one's listening, but then he remembers. He remembers what God has done. Which means not only what God can do, but what God has done tells us God's character. God brings justice and judgment and God shows mercy. And it's not something that he just knows out there. It's not just something written in a book. Habakkuk's experienced this. God strengthens him, makes his feet like the deer. Which doesn't mean that somehow Habakkuk is lifted above the problems. It's not saying that his fig tree is full even though everyone else's is empty. 
He's describing an internal spiritual strength, the strength to keep trusting God, the strength to keep praying big prayers, do it again in our time, the strength from knowing who God is, what he's done in the past, and confidence that God will once again act, once again in wrath, remember mercy. He's strengthened even though he may not see it in his own time. And because of God's strength, he's able to pray that God will do it again and rejoice even in the midst of suffering. Habakkuk's prayer reminds us of what we read in Philippians 4. So please turn to Philippians 4. Philippians is a book which has the word rejoice in it over and over again. One of the many big messages of Philippians, Christians can rejoice even in anxious times. We're going to have a look at Philippians chapter 4, starting at verse 4. It is up on the screen for those who haven't been able to find it yet, but Philippians 4, 4, it's worth turning to in your Bible, so you just know it's there. It's such precious truth. Philippians 4.4 Rejoice in the Lord always, I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything. But in every situation, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. How is it possible? How is rejoice in the Lord always possible? Some of you might be thinking, how is it possible to rejoice in the Lord sometimes when things are not going well? How can we rejoice when there's no food in the fridge? How can you rejoice when your job's on the line? It sounds impossible. Unless you know God. Unless you know the God who has acted in the past. We've got more reason to pray big prayers, more reasons to rejoice and have a go because we've seen the fullness of God in Christ. Because Jesus has lived, died, risen again. The same risen Jesus is now seated at the right hand of the Father. The same Jesus has poured out his spirit. We know the God who hears and answers prayer. The God who can and does give strength to those who hold fast to him. I've been rebuked by Habakkuk, but encouraged. Let's be a church that knows what God has done and has the courage to pray, do it again. Let's pray. Father God, we confess we are not good listeners to your word and we are slow to pray. Please grow our deep desire to hear you, to meet you in the scriptures, for the Bible to be living and active word to us. Make us a church that loves the Bible. Help us to help each other to love the word because in it we meet you. Please make us a church who prays. We pray, do it again. We remember the things you have done, starting with 120 disciples, but saving thousands more, millions more. We know you're the God who has preserved truth in your church, has continued to pour out your spirit, saving people through all the years. We ask you to continue to do this, that you do it again.
There are thousands of people in our region who don't know Jesus. Please save them. Do it again. And use us. Use us to answer our prayers that in our region the knowledge of Christ's glory may fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. Amen.